Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Archibus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. For a little while this evening, I want to teach and preach on that subject. Him, I proclaim to you. You may be seated. God bless you. Amen. Our mission is to lead people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and develop them into fully devoted followers of him. We say it often because it is imperative that we never forget our mission as disciples of Jesus Christ. This is why we exist. Jesus himself said in Matthew 28 and 18, All authority or power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That is why we exist. That is our ultimate mission of being on the planet as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, to lead people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and develop them into fully devoted followers of him. But while our mission and while our message never changes, would you just say that? Never changes. Our mission and our message Never changes. That is true, but our methods can and should change as we seek to accomplish our mission. In fact, the Bible repeatedly demonstrates that both Jesus and the disciples used a diversity of methods and appeals and communication to reach people of great diversity with the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of this month, we took time and we looked at the missional work of Apollos or Aquila and Priscilla who showed Apollos, a sincere but misguided follower of Jesus, the way more accurately. Amen? That's one end of the spectrum. But tonight I'd like to direct our attentions and focus on the other end of the missional spectrum, and that is by looking at Paul's preaching to pagans who had no knowledge of Jesus Christ, had no real knowledge of of God being the God, and certainly no working knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. So that is a little different audience than Apollos being shown the way more accurately, and yet in Acts we are shown a demonstration that the apostles and the Christians were able to reach both. They were a this and that church. Amen? I thought you might kind of 
understand this and that. It's been said a few times. Amen. <laughs> so it was during his first missionary journey, first tour of duty that Paul and Barnabas visited Lystra, which is in modern-day Turkey. And it is here that we get our first snapshot of where Paul is speaking to what appears to be a purely pagan audience. Starts in Acts 14 and 8. says, while they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached the gospel. Looking straight at him, Paul realized he had the faith to be healed. Can you say walking in the Spirit? So Paul called to him in a loud voice, stand up. And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. Amen. That supernatural manifestation of God's power caused quite a stir, as you might expect, right? So much so that these precious people, the citizens of Lystra, they thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods manifested in the flesh. Acts 8, 14 and 12. They decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul was Hermes or Hermes, depending on how you want to say it, since he was the chief speaker. Now, there's a lot of cute uh, Christians, professed Christians and preachers who uh, would love to be professed to be God in the flesh. They act like it. They want money like it. But this was not the case with Paul or Barnabas. This audience, needless to say, these were not God-fearers. These were not Gentiles. These were pagan, polytheistic people. But these people who didn't really know what they believed, but they just believed in whatever it was. They believed in all the gods. They were non-discriminatory. But these people were so blown away by the miraculous healing of the cripple that they not only thought Paul and Barnabas were gods manifested in the flesh, they were preparing to offer sacrifices to them and worship them. Seeing this misguided reaction, Paul and Barnabas run into the crowd. They dash into the middle of the chaos and they have this simple message to these pagan people. Friends, in verse 15, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. We have come not to be worshipped. We have come not to exploit you or to steal from you. We have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and that you should turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. You see, this God who is creator of all, in the past, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness for instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful 
hearts. And you thought you needed exploring God's word. And you might. And you thought into his marvelous light was the answer. And it might be. But what if they don't even know or believe the Bible? Notice Paul's simple and clear message. He just said it real sweet and simple. Sweet if he's in the South, rude other places. Abandon the powerless gods of your own imagination because there's only one living God and creation demonstrates his power and goodness. That, that's all Paul preached to them. Abandoning your, your useless gods, which they already knew that, no matter what they professed, no matter what their festivals were, they knew inside that this God has never answered a prayer. Right? So Paul says, he just speaks what they know. Turn away from your useless gods. Let me introduce you to the only living God. And look at creation. It's the evidence that he loves you and cares for you and has a plan for you. But notice what Paul does not do. He does not quote any Old Testament scriptures. They weren't ready for a Bible study. They didn't even believe that God was God by himself. They sure didn't believe that his word was truth. But just because Paul doesn't quote from the Bible, that doesn't mean his sermon wasn't aligned to the Bible. That doesn't mean his sermon wasn't influenced by the Bible. He just didn't quote the scriptures. You can tell your story and you can declare and proclaim who Jesus Christ is and you never have to quote one verse out of the Bible, but you can be giving them Bible all the time through your words, through your phrases, through the concepts, through being aligned to the truth of Scripture. Right? Why, why, why would Paul not quote to them the Old Testament? He loved quoting from the Old Testament. He was the master at quoting from the Old Testament. And when it came to the Jews, Paul's method was to absolutely bombard them with overwhelming evidence that Yahweh was Jesus Christ, God manifested in the flesh. But not with these pagans. Short, sweet, and to the point. There is a God. He is the only living God. And creation is the evidence he loves and cares for you. Paul realized that these pagan people needed to first believe in God. They had to first believe he was the only God. They had to understand he was creator and Lord of all. And they had to understand that creation wasn't the whims of the gods and weather wasn't because the gods were fighting and trees didn't come up because this God and did that and that God did that. There was a God, he was creator of all and he had given the earth for a man and for women to have purpose and meaning in life. Paul wanted them to understand that it is in God's mercy and in God's long suffering that God was calling everyone now to worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, until they believed that there was a God 
until they believed that God was the only God, there was no need to go any further. But once they believed, then they could be shown the mighty work, the saving work of the mighty God in Christ. Once they believed, then they could be told how to come in relationship with that God through repentance of their sins and baptism in Jesus' name and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. But none of that matters if they don't first believe there is a God. And so Paul ministered to the pagans of that city and there were converts. Amen? So now fast forward through your Bible, accelerate through Paul's first journey, back to Antioch, past the Jerusalem Council, back on the second journey. Paul's running through Turkey, and then we hit Paul's. So now in Acts 17, on his second tour of duty, Paul finds himself alone in Athens. Athens, Greece. Anybody like to take a tour to Athens? Amen. So though Rome was the capital of the Roman world and the political pa uh, capital of that empire, Athens for sure was the preeminent capital of culture, whether it was literature, philosophy, sculpture, oratory ability, it was the capital. Athens was the home to Plato and Aristotle, Epicurus and Zeno and other philosophers. But what we view in the 21st century as classical art and architecture in that first century was viewed as revered temples and images of pagan gods. And so Luke records for us in Acts 17 and 16 that while Paul waited for Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was provoked with him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul could not ignore the darkness of idolatry that hovered over Athens like a thick cloud. Wherever you went, there was an image to a God. Wherever you turned in Athens, there was a temple to a God. Their culture, their commerce, their social life was dominated by the worship of idols and the gods of their imagination. As Paul would later write to the Corinthians, Paul understood that behind the grandeur of the temples, behind the statues of the gods that littered the city, and behind the professed wisdom of all the philosophies of man, Satan and his minions were hard at work, seeking to blind the eyes of the people to the truth of who God was. As he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 and 19, what am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. Paul understood that it wasn't just uh, uh, neutral idol worship, that it wasn't just some kind of just human endeavor, that behind all of that was demonic powers that were, who was seeking to entangle and blind and destroy. They may have called it philosophy and they may have said it was of their own imagination, this God and that God. But behind the scenes, it was the God of this world seeking to destroy and kill and steal and blind. 
No wonder then that Paul is stirred with conviction. It's no wonder that he cannot just sit back and, and, and kick his feet up and grab a scroll and decide to read the hours away while he's waiting on Silas and Timothy to join him. He is moved with compassion. His soul is stirred. He is provoked with indignation at the foolishness of the hearts of men that have been blinded by evil. And so Paul determines that above all else, these people need to hear the truth of who God is. So therefore, he reasoned in the synagogues, verse 17 tells us, with the Jews and Gentile worshipers, but in the marketplace daily with those who just happened to be there. And it was while he was probably in the marketplace, that gathering place, that center of activity for the city, that he encountered certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They were rivals. The Stoics aimed to live in alignment with nature. Sounds familiar, right? They probably hugged a tree on one side and thought the earth was ending in a couple decades on the other side. They placed emphasis on human rationality and self-sufficiency. Sound familiar? They embraced pantheism where God was just a part of the universe and so all gods were accepted because in essence there were no gods. Does that sound familiar? Their rivals were the Epicureans and they just pursued pleasure as the chief goal of life. Sound familiar? Especially a life free from pain, passions, and fears like death. Does that sound familiar? They believed the God, they believed in gods, they just believed the gods had no interest in the cosmos of human existence. This was the picture of philosophy that encountered Paul this day in Athens and what took place in the first century often can take place in the 21st century because some things in the humanistic philosophies of man have never changed. Then those certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said disparagingly, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. This is an aside, and I didn't put it in my notes, but I can't help but say it. As one as Pentecostals, take note that the era of the Athenians in Acts 17 and 18, that when Paul preached Jesus Christ and the resurrection, they could not envision a single indivisible God. They saw it as foreign gods. And that same philosophical era, it's tragically what the church came to believe over time in demanding that God was three sinners of conscience and not one indivisible God manifested in the flesh. It's the same era of the Athenians. It's just now it's stamped as Christian orthodoxy. That's why we're apostolic. The Bible is our authority, not what the church came to believe because the church came to believe what the Athenian pagans believe, not what the Bible teaches. That's free. 
Amen. So, the Stoics mocked, the Epicureans mocked, but divine providence entered in and Paul was invited to speak to this prestigious body of philosophers who met at Areopagus, which is hard to say, and if you can say it better, God bless you. In Acts 17 and 22, the Bible says that Paul then stood in their midst. They basically had rejected him. They basically were ignoring his message, but somehow the word got out to the powers that be. Paul's invited to this prestigious place, this renowned place in, in Athenian culture, and he gets to stand in this court, and this is what Paul declares as he stands in their midst. Men of Athens, I perceive in all things you are very religious. Do you know that we live in a world that is very religious? They may not be Christian anymore much, but they are seeking spirituality. Paul said, for as I was passing through, in our text we read it, and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. In all of your philosophies, in all of your centuries of creating this uh, family of gods, even you know in your soul and inner being there is still something not yet known. There is still a God not yet connected to. To the unknown God, so therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Paul does not yield to their philosophical presuppositions. He does not yield to their framework of reasoning. Paul proclaims to them the one, the true, and the only living God. Paul says, him I proclaim to you, the one you've been searching for, the one that in the deepest chambers of your mind, in the inner core of your soul, that God that you just haven't yet found, him I proclaim to you. God, God with a capital G, who made the world and everything in it. Notice his pattern. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. He is not worshiped with men's hands as though he needed you to do anything. Since God gives to all life and breath and all things, what was Paul saying? God is sovereign. God is creator and Lord of all. Let me introduce you to him. He does not need you but he cares for you and gives humanity all that we need. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. What is Paul saying? Paul is piercing through the segregation that dominated their culture. Paul is piercing through the walls of, that were socially and economically and racially erected. Paul goes right to the core of the identity of every being in his presence and says we are all made in 
God's image and we are fearfully and wonderfully made and we all descend from one man and one woman and so there is no superiority race or nationality. And then Paul goes after the core human question. Why do we exist? Verse 27, why does God do that? Why does God provide? Why, does God, why has God created us? So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him or search for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul then, in that part of his sermon, he, he's declared who God is, but now notice that Paul takes really a moment back. He utilizes the common ground of Greek poetry to lead them further into the holy ground of knowing who God is. So in 17 and 28, he quotes a little poetry. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Then he goes back into his message. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, as you yourself write about and read and enjoy, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Paul declares to them, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's been preaching Jesus Christ but in this sermon, he doesn't even name Jesus by the man whom he has ordained, the man, Christ Jesus. Much like his appeal to the pagans in Acts 14, notice Paul's message to the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17. There is one true God alone. Creation demonstrates his sovereignty and goodness and within all of us, there is a desire to know and be known of God. That Paul's talking to people who don't believe in Yahweh. They don't know the scriptures, but they know that there is a longing in their soul that wants to be known by God. They've searched in, a, in a dozens of idols. They worship in all kind of heathenistic ways. They have declared this and that to be their God. But in their soul, they were created to know God and to be known by God. And Paul speaks to that core God-given identity. Paul says, we can know God. He is near. And furthermore, our existence and identity are in Christ alone or in God alone. But that God who cares for us and who created earth for us and who can be known by us, that God calls us all to repent 
and turn to him because that God who is creator and who is savior is also judge and the day of judgment will come before the throne of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again of this matter. And Paul departed from them, but then verse 34 says, however, some men joined him and believed. When preaching to pagans, it was no different than preaching to Jews or God fears people are people. Some reject truth and mock. Some doubt or have more questions, but some believe. And those who believed in Paul's day here in Athens and in every city and in every region of the known world, those who believed and responded in obedient faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ were enough. They were enough to turn the world upside down with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. They were enough to be the dominant religion of the known world within a few centuries. It was just some. Some doubted and some mocked and some questioned, but some believed and some were enough for God's church to advance all around the world. Amen. Amen. Our mission is to whosoever will. Amen? God's word speaks to us. I don't really need to even say a whole lot more, but our city is filled with thousands and thousands of sincere God followers of Jesus Christ. They are the apostles who have an incomplete understanding of biblical truth and they are just waiting on us to show them the way more accurately. They're ready for a Bible study. They believe in some form or fashion this is the word of God. They have an understanding that there is only one God, even if they misunderstand what that means and how they practice, profess it, and say it. But they understand that there are no other gods. They're ready for your witness. They're ready for your testimony, and they're ready for a Bible Bible study, but our city, our dear city in the Bible belt, so it was once called, is also filled with thousands of people who are not Christians by practice or profession. They may profess to be a Christian and be a part of some denomination, but they do not believe in the sovereignty of God nor in the power or the, or the sovereignty of his word. They may profess allegiance to a non-Christian religion. They may embrace human philosophies. They may claim to be agnostic or even atheistic, but regardless, they are not Christians and they are not followers of Jesus Christ. And so you and I, in our neighborhoods, on our jobs, in our schools, everywhere we go, in our circle of influences, there are people on both ends of the spectrum. So if they are a God follower, we must walk in the spirit, seize the moment, and start where they are at. 
lead them into a Bible study, show them the way more accurately. But if they are not, if they are just a pagan, and that's not a derisive term, it just means they are not a follower of Jesus Christ. If they're a pagan, then the same love, the same compassion, the same care that we would give to a God follower, we must give to them. There, there is no room for cynicism. There is no room for mockery. There is no room for arrogance. There is only room to, for care and love, compassion and concern. Whether you are a God-fearer or you are a pagan, our responsibility is to walk in the spirit and follow Paul's example. And when that opportunity arises, we must proclaim Jesus Christ to them. Amen. Here's what the biblical witness makes clear. I can preach that. You can believe that. But the Bible makes clear that we are desperately dependent on the work of the Spirit to lead us and to guide us to hungry hearts. We are utterly dependent on the demonstration of the power of God to create these moments where people want to know and people are drawn to the city square and people want to understand what and who healed this man. What broke the yoke of addiction in this person's life? What gave that lady peace? What delivered her from the hatred that consumed her soul. I want to know. I don't even believe in your God, but I want to know. And when they want to know, it may not be time to pull out your Bible, but it is time to open up your mouth and say, him I proclaim to you. There is a God. His name is Jesus. He is the only living God. Paul said to the Corinthians in his second letter, if the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. In some ways, it's not their fault. They're not idiots. They're not morons. They're not even evil people. They're pagans, and they are blinded by the gods of this world. And our mission is to seize every divine opportunity that when God opens the door, you and I, led by the Spirit and backed by the Spirit, can say, Him I proclaim to you. How, how does light of truth shine into the lives of these people and shatter the chokehold of darkness in their lives? It's only through the demonstration of the supernatural power of God. Maybe it's a dream, maybe it's a vision, maybe it's a miracle. 
but it's also through the presence and the care of God's people who don't condemn, who care, who love, who are present, who, who are just simply the arms and the feet of Jesus Christ so that through the witness of our presence and the witness of God's power, there is this opportunity in a moment of brokenness, in a moment of pain, in a moment of confusion, in a moment when all of their philosophies have collapsed, in a moment when their religions are not helping them, in a moment when their preferences are not bringing inner peace in their soul. In that moment, it is by our presence and God's power that we can proclaim him, 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 the only living God, the only hope of salvation, the only one that gives eternal hope, him, 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 I proclaim to you. God's declaration in Mark 16 is not just for healing crusades among the saints. It is within the context of our mission that Jesus said these signs will follow them that believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. That's not about healing lines in an altar for you and I, though God does that. That is about what happens on your job, in a break room, in a car, in a park, watching little league soccer, whatever the case may be. This is what can happen in a coffee shop where God demonstrates his power and your presence of God is there and you can open up your mouth and you don't have to even give them a Bible study. All you have to say is I know God and God knows me and you can know him. If you're able, please stand. God can orchestrate divine moments. However, and whenever he chooses, but practically, God's power is often going to be revealed when we love them and care for them in a season of pain and brokenness. Even when it's their own fault. We are first Christians, not politicians. We are first Christians, not physical conservatives or liberal, conser liberal physically liberal. We are first Christians, not white, black, or Hispanic or Asian. We are first Christians. We believe in the family as defined by God. We believe that, in, that a man and a woman were created in the image of God and God made them male and female. But we are kind and we are loving and we are compassionate and we are not condemning and we are not cynical. And even when it's their own fault, even when they are reaping the whirlwind of their own rejection of God, when there is a divine moment and when there is that moment of pain and brokenness and God lets our presence be in that moment, that is when you and I are mandated to say, Him I proclaim to you. Bring your brokenness, 
bring your pain, bring your confusion, bring your gender confusion, bring your hurt, bring your demonic powers, bring all of it to Jesus. Him, high proclaim to you. Some will mock. Some will continue questioning. But some will believe. And to those who believe, we will lead them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And as John said, as many as received them, him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is our mission, to proclaim Jesus to our world, whether the God follower or the pagan. In that divine moment, walking in the spirit, when God manifests his power, let our presence be there to speak Jesus in them and over them. I wonder if you would join me in the altar. It's our custom, but I believe the Lord wants to again cement and strengthen our mission in our hearts and minds. And furthermore, I feel and felt in the service that God's going to affirm and manifest his power even in this place and in this altar time on this night to a struggling heart, to a questioning mind. I don't even know it. I don't even know the questions you're asking. I don't even know the confusion that you've entertained knowing better. But in mercy, God is gonna step into your life tonight and in a supernatural manner, God's going to affirm that he loves you, that he is near to you, and that you can be known again by God. I wonder if you'd open up your heart and open up your mind to God. Lift up your voice. Lift up your voice and let God minister to you right now. All across this place, let the Lord minister to you. Let the Lord bring affirmation into your mission. Let the Lord embolden you with authority. Let the Lord give you a boldness to speak. Come on, we need eyes to see and ears to hear. It's not in our wisdom. It's in the power of the Spirit. We speak Jesus. We proclaim Jesus to the broken and the lonely, to the confused and the rebellious, to the idol worshipers, to those who are opposed to them own selves. We speak Jesus. Jesus.